Welcome, pudding people, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I am your host, Ken Seymour, here with your other host, Richard Geiger. Well, hello, sir. We have a very, very special episode for you today. Uh, We had the distinct pleasure, or maybe I should say I had the distinct pleasure. You had the pleasure. Uh, Oh, but I had the pleasure, so we're good. So we're all good, yeah. So... uh, very recently, I took a mild road trip over to Cleveland, Ohio, for Wizard World Cleveland. Um, it's a convention, if you're not completely familiar with it, that's been running for many, many years now. Um, it, it, Cleveland is an extension of the existing grouping of conventions. Wizard World did not originally start in Cleveland. It started in other cities, and they've been branching out to multiple locations. They were actually... Uh, on the West Coast previously, if yeah. I remember. From what I understand, there's multiple wizard worlds across the country. Absolutely. Uh, and it tends to focus, you would think, on comic books, but you will find out all sorts of interesting information today. Uh, we will be playing interviews from John Glover, who is better known as Lionel Luther in Smallville, um, you know, uh, or the Riddler in the Batman animated series, right? Impressive, yes. Right, very cool. We've got an interview with Thomas Nicholas, who was in Rookie of the Year, as well as the American Pie films. We've got an interview with Jerry Milani, uh, who is uh, the PR guy, basically, for Wizard World and has a great deal of knowledge about the history of the convention, as well as the inner workings of uh, how everything goes together. So, obviously, Richard here decided that it was more fun to go on a family uh, excursion instead of joining me in Cleveland, which I don't really blame him for. Because Gosh, that family vacation. Just, Jeez. It's got to be awful. But uh, that allowed me to run around like a chicken with my head cut off in Wizard World, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, you got your first taste of a convention with NWI, you know, just a little while ago. Wizard World is bigger than NWI significantly. I got that. I got that. Well, impression that this was more than just like your kind of get together of stuff in a regional sense, right? Yeah. Because there was a, there was a a few of the snaps that you had sent me were. A much larger place, which I knew that was going to be. But the the big indicator is the people that were going to be there and the fact that this was a weekend, right? Hmm, absolutely. In more than one day, you actually have three days that Wizard World takes place over the convention center that it was at. Not the entire floor was taken by the convention, but a, a sizable chunk of it. And several of the conference rooms and ballrooms were used for panels and a variety of different things that you could go to to learn how to carve pumpkins or you know a variety of other skills that you may not expect you could do there's a pumpkin carving yes there was i'm not joking i interesting (laughs) no no i'm not disparaging at all pumpkin carving because i enjoy a good pumpkin pumpkin carving it just seemed out of place, yeah. t- out of time, but there is, but not, but that would be an interesting. That would be an interesting half hour to spend. You I know, think. there was uh, costuming uh, uh, stuff. There, how to make slime. I saw that was going on. My niece does that a lot, 
and so 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 Elmer's glue, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows it's you know white tube of Elmer's glue. Well, you use that to make a lot of slime. And so Elmer's has gone into their glue and just like changed everything about their glue. Like this business with Elmer's glue is booming because of slime. You can get sparkly blue Elmer's glue and all this nonsense. So it's kind of crazy. So my my ecstatic self preparing for this uh, convention, I definitely wanted to talk to John Glover. I definitely wanted to talk to pretty much everybody they brought in. Uh, a handful of people that were supposed to be there on Friday did not show up either because they had to cancel the convention completely or they were going to be conflicts and, and, and they could only come on Saturday. So I didn't get to meet uh, Kevin Conroy until Saturday and was not able to get some time to talk with him, though I'm hopefully going to be fixing that here soon. But I think that... Just having the chance to talk to John Glover was fantastic. This is a a man who's been acting for a very long time and has been magnificent at it the entire time. And if you ever get a chance to see him in anything, he's he's just... The bee's knees. Yeah, he's kind of awesome. And just the nicest dude ever. So now, with no further ado, we're going to cut in to the interview with John Glover. Uh, thank you, Mr. Glover, uh, for uh, taking the time to speak with us here today. Of course. How have you been enjoying the con? So far, so good, but we just started. Well, that's, that's We've been open time. about, what, two hours now? Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> it's a lot of nice people, a lot of excited people, um, and it's always good to meet people that uh, you've touched somehow, somewhere, somehow. So I saw that you were also at Wizard World in uh, Portland. Not too long ago. Portland. Was that correct? No. No, because you were you and Pensacola. Pensacola. That's Pens- Pensacon, they call it. Pensacon. So yeah, that was a couple of weeks ago. Both you and uh, Kevin Conroy. Com- were yeah. There at the same time. Now we were together also at the Old Globe Theater back in the seventies, I think, or early eighties. We were in um, uh, um, Much Ado About Nothing together and King Lear together. Fantastic. So I've known Kevin a long, long time. So do you yeah. have a, a special place in your heart for the Shakespeare plays? Oh God, yes. Which, one, which is your favorite? Well, I'm I'm looking to to find a Tempest to be in. I wanna I wanna do Prospero before I get too old, and can't can't learn it anymore. But that yeah. would be kind of fantastic. I, I, I think so. Yeah. So you know, in, in looking at uh, in looking at your start, I saw that you were at the Barter Theater. That's where I started when I was in college. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, what is that really the longest running professional theater in the United States? That's what they were saying. Does well, it was, it was started by uh, Robert Porterfield back during the Depression. Um, he was in New York with a lot of other actors who weren't getting a lot of jobs. That was hard times. And he grabbed a, his friends together and said, listen, I got a place down in southwest Virginia. There's a theater there. We can, we can go down there and, and do our theater work down there. And somebody said, but Bob, they don't have any money either. He said, no, but they're farmers and things, so they can get into the theater, buy their tickets with chickens and hams and eggs and stuff. So it became the Barter Theater. That's so back in the 60s, my mother was from that area. She was, uh, this was in Abingdon, Virginia, and she was from Pulaski, Virginia. So she went on my freshman year of 
college in Baltimore. She went down to visit her mother in Pulaski and called the theater. She knew I was interested in acting and she found out that they were apprentices. So you had to pay money and I went down and worked like a dog. Uh, but I got parts in plays that first season. I played a, the lead in a play called Look Homeward Angel about Thomas Wolfe. Um, uh, so I, I started down there in Virginia back in the 60s. What's the difference in feel that, that between a theatrical performance, a standard stage performance? And film and, and film TV? And TV. What? Well, when you do a film or TV, you, you, you shoot a scene. It's usually not in order of, of what happens to the story. So you've got to hone that in. But when you're filming, if you blurb or make a mistake, you, you shoot it again. But when you're in a play, after you've had a, a, a nice, solid rehearsal, it's, uh, it's you, the other actors, and the audience all together. And it's live. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's, uh, you never know what's going to happen. You never know what the audi how the audience is going to react. So it's always just a little bit different every night. And it's very, very exciting. And they can't cut anything or, or pick a take that you didn't think you were any good in. Uh, that, yeah. that, that can probably result in some, in some kind of uh, fortuitous happenstance as well. Well, and depending on who the captain of the ship is, the director, you, you've got a solid production. So if something happens, you, you know enough to sort of save it and keep the story lifted and, and go on with the show. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Now, specifically, I saw that you studied under uh, Milton Catellus. Catellus. Yeah. So, every actor has their own particular approach. Yeah. Craft. Uh huh. How do you think that he influenced how you progressed as an actor? Well, well, I I didn't uh, I didn't start studying with him until I was uh, maybe in my late fifties or early sixties. Ah. Um, and what happened was I I had a long long career. Uh, in New York and around the country in theater and when I went out to LA uh, this in the 80s I started making a lot of films and making a lot of money and I kind of got sucked into a trap of, uh, of making money so my work got a little lazier and and I stopped uh, I, I sort of closed up shop a bit uh, because my focus changed from storytelling to money making which is a trap a big trap when you when you act you, you don't make a lot of money sometimes sometimes you do and I realized that I had I had lost some of my drive and I'd heard about this teacher for a long long time about how good he was and I was afraid to go into an acting class because I'd never had one before and I was embarrassed to, to be, I guess, critiqued in front of other actors. But I knew that I had to. So I trusted him and went in and started doing scene work and got my mojo back. But so, so what I realized was that the, the money part, is as important as it is to live, it can't be the singular focus, that it has to be about doing the work telling the story and enjoying the work and working hard. So I got back to work. That's, 
so in in kind of this fine tuning that you had, do you approach your parts as kind of a, a, a method actor mind, or do you approach them more? I don't quite know what that means, well, and I, but 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 it, but I. I read a play, I see how I react to the story, I see what the character seems like to me, I, I like to pick things that are challenging, to challenge myself, um, and I like to keep searching and, uh, and um, find jobs that are interesting, that can give me a good time, or, or can make a difference to the world maybe change people, make them think about something that they've not thought about before, that, that we all need to think about. I'm about to start rehearsals on uh, Tuesday for a play called All Our Children, which is, about, which is a, a, about a story that I didn't know, that during the Nazi um, regime in Germany, they were taking children who, who were spastic, who were... Um, epileptic who, who could not take care of themselves and they were sending them down to what used to be a children's hospital or a clinic but they were using it as a screening grounds to take the worst off and the youngest to be euthanized because they were a burden of money and care for the regime and I play a bishop who goes and talks to this man who had created this clinic who was now become a part of this Nazi regime to talk to him, to, to try to make him understand that what he was doing was wrong, that these children should not be killed, they should be helped, that it would be better for every living human being to help other people. So I, first time I read it I thought, oh, this is a dicey play. Then I read it again and I think, no. This is a story that needs to be told, especially what's happening in the country today with children being ripped from their parents and lost. I mean, a lot of these people, these, these parents can't find their children again. There's no record of where they went. They've disappeared. So we can't let things like this happen again Absolutely. in this world. So it's a, it's a job that I'm, it's a, I've taken on a responsibility to try and reach people to tell this story so so I'm very excited about it but I'm frightened <laughs> I don't know if I can do it well enough to to go into people's hearts and souls and but but I'm gonna do my damnedest to tell a story that needs to be told right now that's got to be exciting though too. it is exciting it's very exciting um, I probably would get I would probably have my uh, uh, brow beaten just a little bit if I didn't ask uh, what a little bit about what most people know you for, obviously, uh, Smallville and uh, uh, things like voicing the Riddler. Uh -huh. um, so what I kind of wanted to know, one, one of the more things, one of the things that interests me more uh, about a lot of productions is how how the cast and how the crew come together, the formation of the project. Mm -hmm. How did you originally become involved with Smallville? I think somebody uh, had to. When they were shooting the pilot, I got a call a day or two before that my scene was to shoot. I had basically one small scene, but my agent said, somebody dropped out, I think. So they had to find a replacement. And they knew I played sort of rather cold, cold men. So <laughs> I got offered the part. 
and I thought, why not go to Vancouver? I was living in L.A., so I went to Vancouver um, and shot the pilot, and sure enough, they wanted me back, but because I didn't have a contract, I wasn't always available when they wanted me back. So the second season, they offered me a contract, which actors call golden handcuffs, because it ties you down for however long you're working, but you're making money. So that's the golden handcuffs. But, but the Smallville was good enough, because I wasn't in every episode, to let me know when I wasn't in things, so I could do other projects before I, I, I tried to help Alzheimer's raise money so when their walks would, would come in October they would make sure that I had that period not in an episode. So they were very generous with, with my time and let me be free when they knew that I was going to go off and, and do something for the good of mankind. So it was a, a very beautiful kind of company that I was working with. All the actors got on. Uh, we had a great crew. Canadians, you know, so they're all a little bit gentler and kinder and sweeter than than we rowdy Americans are. Well, I'm, I'm often made fun of a little bit from, from my co-host, who is not able to be here at, at this juncture, as a lot of my favorite uh, a lot of my favorite actors and things tend to come from Canada. Uh-huh. So it, it's, it says you, you, you love the Canadians. It's like, well, what's not to love? For the most part, they're, they're all pretty wonderful from the ones mm-hmm. that I've met and seen. And cutting edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you got the joke. Yeah. All right. Okay. But uh, so, you know, this is very tied to comic books. Now, not everybody is kind of immersed in the comic book. I wasn't. Ahead of time. I knew nothing about these these people that I'm playing now. Of course, Lionel is not in any. He he, which which was very freeing for me, because I there was no Lionel before, so I could create him. So when I started veering off and, and really trying to, to demonstrate that what I was doing was to help my son grow stronger and better, and, and there was love involved, people, the fans got very, very confused. I mean, people would literally stop me. It's happened four or five times that people stopped me and said, I love what you're doing on the show, and I love the show, but I'm really confused. Are you supposed to be a good guy or a bad guy? And I knew right then that I was doing a good job because I was playing a human being. That, so, giving it some layers that most yeah. people aren't well, aware that's, of. Well, that's what I strive for, to be human. So did, did doing this role at all result in you becoming interested at all into the medium of comics, or at least into the history of it? The history of it, yeah, yeah. Because I was in Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I voiced the Riddler. But I knew nothing about these things when I was growing up. I didn't really read comic books. I don't know why. I was a strange child. (laughs) A very strange child. Most of the people that I know of that read comic books, they would be often described as strange. So, just to kind of wrap things up, because I know your time is very precious, and I'm very appreciative of the time that you've given. Um, Is there anything that... uh, you know, other than the project that you mentioned before, that you would like to kind of talk about that you're you're going to be involved with uh, in the in the coming months. Uh, there's another play uh, uh, that Michael Tucker. Remember Michael Tucker from L.A. Law and Absolutely. his wife Jill Eikenberry. He's written a play called Fern Hill about three couples who are nearing, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the end of their lives, as they're trying to figure out how to how to 
come to an end. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's as Betty Davis said, uh, getting old is not for sissies. Well. So they, it's a very interesting play. I'm looking for a place to play Prospero, though, as I've said. So. Well, that's 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 yeah. wonderful. Um, again, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Please. Ho- hopefully, uh, I'm. Uh, hopefully, I will get the opportunity to speak with you again, maybe at a greater length. I would love all right. to all right. delve, delve a little deeper into okay. the history of what you've done. Right. I'm around all weekend. All right. Okay. So, okay. So, uh, first off, uh, when I was younger, uh, I had a fish tank. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. We're getting that reverb. Getting the reverb. Man. And scene. Um, that was funny. Okay, back to my story, which yeah. is absolutely very little to do with that. When I was younger, I had a fish tank, and I had lots of little beta fish in my fish tank, and I had uh, two of them. One I named Jill, and the other one I named Eikenberry. <laughs> and that is my story. You're welcome. So... Obviously, he seems like a good dude. He is super nice. I, you, you never know what to expect out of the the actors that you come to admire at the work. But man, he was just super nice. I, I think I might have told one or two people this. I just kind of wanted to adopt him and take him with me. Just, mm, I think he was too nice, and that's a problem. <laughs> you got to put your foot down. Um, so anyway. And if you, if you look at his list of things, and he mentioned some some of the things that he's done, right? Yes. Uh, but that only kind of scratches the surface on the things that he's done. I mean, obviously he was there because of things like Smallville, because of his right, you know, voicing the Riddler, things like that. But he's been in a lot of other stuff with lots of other people. I so. had a whole host of questions that we just did not get time to to get to and one of which I wanted to talk to him about a show named Brimstone that he was on. Yeah, you mentioned that uh real, like that it was real short-lived. Short-lived. He played the devil. That had to have been so much fun and I talked to him a little bit off of uh off of the recording and he remembers it and I think there would be a great deal of of fun and storytelling that would that would come from that, but so I had a chance to talk to him. Super excited. Had a chance to uh, speak to Michael Rosenbaum very briefly, and that was super exciting as well. But you know, a lot of the actors and actresses were kind of thematically linked in a lot of ways. You had a lot of people from Smallville, a lot of people from Charmed, Thomas. Ian Nicholas didn't really fall into any of those categories. But I was excited to talk to him nonetheless because he's been in some really interesting stuff over the years. And he's super down to earth, surprised the heck out of me uh, at how good of a singer he is. He did a couple of sets. They had a main stage uh, set up where he's played and sang and he was so good yeah those was a couple of the uh photos that you sent me and i was like oh who's that dude and be, because it didn't like i don't think when you think of him that you think of him as a performer in that way you think of him as performer on the big screen right yeah. um and he said oh it's this guy and he's really really good and i was like 
okay, weird. And like, <laughs> yeah, he's got stuff. He, he did stuff from, uh, so a lot of people will think of him, I guess in, in our age group, mm-hmm. they think more of him from the American Pie family of, of movies, I Absolutely. would guess. I think so. Uh, now, you had mentioned that he did some stuff off the soundtrack for the third one, right? Fourth one. Fourth one, okay. So, yeah, yeah he's good enough to... Play some jams on that. He's got a couple albums. Uh, so, yeah. So, with with no further ado, uh, let's take a listen to Mr. Nicholas. Ooh. So, uh, thank you, Mr. Nicholas, for taking a couple of moments to talk with the pudding guys here. Um, well, I like pudding, too. So I, That's what we hope. That's why we say everybody loves pudding. And then there's still the occasional person that says, you're wrong. And, well, what can I do? What's your favorite kind of pudding? Uh, tapioca. I like I was it. Going, I was going with tapioca as well. You know, you say pudding, and that's like my first thought is tapioca. Yeah. So, I'm like I was uh, saying before we uh, started recording a minute, I was super excited because I have been a bit of a fan for some time. And uh, you, uh, the American Pie films specifically uh, have been uh, just kind of a fun, a fun thing that can always make me smile at, at a point when I'm not smiling. Um, <laughs> so, one of the things that uh, has also resulted from this is... Uh, is certain things have gotten stuck in my head. So we were just witnessing you perform some music, and I was looking into it. Uh, you did some. You did some music actually for the. Was it the fourth American Pie film? Was that actually? Yeah, I had. I, I you know I totally spaced. I didn't end up playing that song in the set today, but I'll play it tomorrow. Uh, I have a song on the soundtrack album of American Reunion. Yeah. Uh, which is called My Generation. Um, and uh, it, it plays in the movie when Stifler sticks his fingers in my mouth um, in the bar. And, uh, and, and again, it, did make it, on, it made it on to the actual album uh, that was released as well for so, the soundtrack. So have you always been musically inclined? Is this something that, uh, that you've kind of always done with the acting? Or is this something that's happened later in your career? I mean, it technically happened later. Um, I started acting when I was six, and I started playing music when I was about 14. Um, and then, I don't know, I mean, over the, I didn't start touring until my third album, which I, or my third or fourth album, which I call my first, because the first three were like school. Uh, and so since that time, since like 2006, I've released um, six albums, played over 600 shows around the world. Not every country, but, uh, you know, Europe, UK, um, you know, North America, uh, I'm, you know, still still some uh, some other places yet to explore. But, um, yeah, I love playing music. Do you have that spinal tap moment every every so often? You know, we're huge in Japan, that sort of thing. You got this, this, this uh, they've really latched onto your music in one place that you would not have expected potentially? Um. I mean, I've played a show in Japan, but uh, I haven't gotten the opportunity to do a tour over there. All my albums have been uh, self-released, so never had a, a record deal or, or anything. So, because um, I've I've got to sort of be in control of it to manage my time in between films, and obviously now uh, between like you know taking care of my family, like and being around for my kids. My son is seven. My daughter turns three next month, and I was even just talking to a friend of mine the other day and he's like yeah we could go to this like you know 15 day tour and I was like nope (laughs) I will I was like I will do maybe one or two 10 day tours max throughout the year and the rest of the stuff is more like weekend warrior 
kind of things. That's kind of awesome. Um, so, so you were just saying that you started acting at uh, six. Yeah. How did how did that happen? Is this something that you go, you know, the parents kind of said, oh, you should try this. You're you're uh, a uniquely uh, photogenic young gentleman, and you should probably be in front of some cameras regularly. Um, it, it didn't quite happen like that, which is maybe why my viewpoint is a little bit different. Uh, I love being on set. My mom um, sort of you well had me to help her out of a jam. She was uh, pursuing her acting career in casting atmosphere. Got a call from her boss on a Sunday night, like at 10 p.m., like said, okay, we need an altar boy for the scene tomorrow, 6 a.m. call. Where is she going to find a kid? I was six or five or whatever, so she woke me up out of bed in the morning before school and said, you're coming to work with me. So I played that altar boy uh, as a favor to her, but I loved being on set. So from that point forward... I was like, Mom, when can I do it again? And she brought me on to like another job when the opportunity came up a few months later. Uh, and then I still bugged her about you know wanting to do it some more. So it's kind of like once you introduce an idea to a kid, they will hound you <laughs> until you follow through with it. And, and, and so once we did start pursuing it and got an agent and I started doing auditions, uh, my mom you know, was never pushing me toward it. Like, if I showed any hesitation, it wasn't like piano class. Like, you must go. It was like, oh, you don't want to go today? No problem. Or, you know, every couple weeks you'd be like, hey, you sure you still want to keep doing this? And I would always say yes. So so support, but not too much. Right. Support, but like pseudo freedom. Uh, and there were some times where I backed away from auditions or opportunities just to go play with my friends. And it was acceptable by my mom. So she never, she was never forcing me into it. Is that kind of where you learn to kind of juggle? Because you were really involved in athletics when you were in high school too, right? You know, there's. I know what you're about to bring up. So I was just on this this uh, this this radio program on Rover, like uh, here in Cleveland, uh, yesterday or what is today? Yeah, yesterday. And they they made some mention about, and which is the fourth time I've heard, um, that I was I was going to be in a, a live action Fortnite movie. <laughs> and I'm like, where are you guys reading this? Because I am not seeing this anywhere. Oh, yeah, right. And they said it's. They said it was on my wiki. I went to yes. my wiki page. It's not there. It's on IMDb. It's it's on IMDb. Mm-hmm. That's so weird. It's it, so I found it on this other site called Revolvi. Mm-hmm. I don't trust Revolvi more right, often right. than not. So not only that, but you're you're asking about the athletics. I think because of this other piece of information that's in this article. Which is the funniest thing. I gotta send this to my mom. Apparently, I uh, transferred to Mannheim Central to, in my senior year of high school, where I played tight end for the state championship winning Barons. That 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 was why I was asking. It seemed slightly <laughs> out of character. No, not out of character so much as just it didn't seem to match. And it's like, okay, well, he's going to be there, so I get to ask. And- yeah, that, that I don't know who wrote that or where that started. Maybe there's. Someone named Thomas Nicholas that went to high school. Uh, I think that is. I think we we looked it up the other day, and it's over here on the the East Coast, Pennsylvania, which I've never oh. lived on the East Coast. I've worked on the East Coast, but never lived over here. So, uh, as far as I know, I'm not in a live action Fortnite movie, and I definitely know for a fact <laughs> that I did not go to Mannheim Central, nor did I ever play football. Good. Okay. So. I'm feeling slightly better because when I was when I was doing the research, I, I just had a couple of moments ago. It's like okay, I'll have to I'll have to double check this. <laughs> this doesn't seem quite right. 
Um, so, but one thing that is right, obviously, to, to bring back up the uh, a couple of the films that you've been in. Um, I mean, you, you had to have had some had to have had some interesting reaction. You had such a, a big hit so early on with Rookie of the Year. What what was that like? How did that affect uh, affect your day to day? Did it? I mean, I could see some people could you know, blow their heads up. Some people make them want to shrink away. What was it like to be in that kind of uh, that kind of success so soon? Um, I mean, there was certainly a moment of having a kind of like a, a, a quote unquote a large ego, as large as a twelve year old could have, only when we were doing the promotion for the film, because the studio was you know sending me around and you know his first class travel, which I you know had never done, and and four star hotels and you know everything's paid for and limos and all that stuff um and they obviously you know want to keep you happy so that you're out presenting you know your best possible well-rested happy self while you're promoting the film and then after the film kind of came out that sort of uh treatment went away rather quickly which was um it was disillusioning if that's even a word delusional i'm delusional no uh it was just sort of odd. It was an odd experience. And then there was like this other element of, of being recognized. So I learned how to kind of um, navigate and how to... Like, and I think, I think anyone can do this. Anyone can enter a room like they own the room and everyone will look at them even if they aren't anyone. And certain people can walk into a room and disappear. So I learned how to do both um, and sort of as my acting technique at that point I'd already been studying for five years uh, I sort of added that kind of prowess to my life if that makes any sense so that I could you know go somewhere when I needed to be the center of attention and be the center of attention and then you know go to the grocery store and not be the center of attention well, that seems like a pretty pretty handy skill to have if you're going to be involved in any sort of uh, high-profile uh, things like acting or, or music or anything. Yeah, like I mean, I think it, it kind of gives me the opportunity to be both of those things, to be egomaniacal and uh, uh, humble. So I am, I am all things. I don't think anyone's really one or the other. You are every woman. <laughs> I'm every woman. Yeah. So, okay, so I, I, I have to at least touch on, I know I don't want to dominate too much of your time because... Uh, there's a lot going on, even if it is the Friday leading into the weekend. But um, so the American Pie films that you've been uh, involved with uh, that may be the most note- noteworthy uh, for, the, for the person that wouldn't, wouldn't dig deeper. Um, how did you become involved with that uh, in the beginning? Was it just kind of a casting thing? Did you know somebody say, hey, there's this kind of funny script that you should read? How did that happen? Um, I mean, I, I got you know, sent the script from my agent and there was, you know, a pending audition or an audition pending my interest. Uh, and I read the title, which was untitled teenage sex comedy that someone that ought that wait, untitled teenage sex comedy that can be made for under $10 million that audiences will love, but studios will hate. Something like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably getting it wrong. And the uh, opening scene was um, 
Kevin uh, and Vicky in her bedroom, and she was giving him instructions on which way to move his fingers if you catch my drift. And I promptly threw the script in the trash, <laughs> called my agent and said, no thanks. Uh, why are you sending me porn? <laughs> and, uh, and then a few weeks went by and my agent called again and said, look, they, they really want to see you. Uh, I think at the time they had offered the role to Andrew Keegan, hmm. um, but he was already contracted to do 10 Things I Hate About You. And he had this one date that crossed over on the schedule, and they had Save Ferris scheduled for that date, and the director wouldn't move that date because the band schedule and all this, so he couldn't accept the offer. So, you know, Andrew Keegan and I are not, like, identical twins by any stretch of the imagination, but we have a similar kind of look. So I think they became interested in, in, in me again, and they kind of circled back, at least according to my agent. Uh, and so I promised that I would read the script in its entirety and, and give it another judgment. Um, and then I think I was busy with my band at the time and I didn't pick up the script in time and I was supposed to have given an answer and I said, listen, I, I didn't leave the script out in the Dropbox. I'll drive and pick it up tonight, but schedule the audition for tomorrow. I'll go. Um, so then I'd already kind of committed to the audition and I remember I, I had like an 11 a.m. appointment I was staying at my like high school girlfriend's house that night at, in Northridge, and I had to get to Santa Monica. So I woke up at like 5 a.m. to read the script, and I remember laughing hysterically at 5 in the morning over the script, and I loved it. And so then it was kind of went from there. It, it seemed very much like, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's part of the job. You have to always seem like you're getting along with the people that you're getting along with and hate the people that you're supposed to hate. But sometimes things bleed over into the actual finished piece and it seemed very much like all of you got along pretty well even behind the scenes i seem to remember hearing some stories of jokes that also slid in uh because they were funny behind behind the scenes and then just managed to make it onto the actual set do you still have kind of any connection to some of the people that you uh that you work with on the films did um, yeah, I mean, I see, you know, some of them around and talk to them, you know, occasionally. Um, I think, like, I just I just spoke to Chris Owen, who I think is doing an upcoming Wizard World. I don't know if that's been officially announced yet. Um, and then uh, I was just texting with uh, Mina Savari. Um, I guess she's doing a project with Penelope Ann Miller, and I just produced a film with uh, Mickey Rourke, Penelope Ann Miller, Lou Diamond Phillips, uh, Sean Astin, and Matt Ryan, who are here this weekend. Um, so I was, you know, just kind of texting her about that. And then Sean, uh, I ran into while we were filming. Um, I went to, uh, I went with my production designer to Warner Brothers to pick up some uh, prop rentals. It's a friend of mine's a production designer on Lethal Weapon that Sean's working on. So I surprised Sean on set. He was kind of like, wait, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, I was grabbing some gear for my film and, you know, heard you were here, so I thought I'd just pop over and surprise the heck out of you. So, you know, I still keep in touch, but obviously everyone's busy working. So. Exactly, exactly. Well, then you actually touched on one of the other things I wanted to ask you, if I still have enough time to do so. Uh, you've started, well, I shouldn't say started, it's been some time, but you, you wear a lot of hats. I mean, not just between the music and the, uh, and the acting, but producing and directing and... Uh, uh, 
what kind of inspired you to kind of get behind the camera? Uh, uh, or but you know, I don't know if behind the camera actually. Yeah, yeah, behind the camera. Um, my my brother uh, pitched me an idea when I was like twenty one or twenty or something like that, um, and kind of was like, hey, you know, you you just kind of wait around for opportunities and you you know you go on auditions but you know have you ever thought about like making something on your own and I was like yeah you know I've, I've toyed around with it and my, this is my older brother by six years um, so he pitched me an idea for a story that was loosely based on his life because we're half siblings um, and he uh, is a DJ he does like private events for weddings corporate events bar and bat mitzvahs I worked for him for a time uh, from 14 to 17 doing those private parties. And if you read Tiffany Haddish's book, that's what she talks about is my brother and actually working with me. Although the story she wrote in there is not completely true, but maybe she just remembers it differently. Um, but she is a comedian, so you have to spin everything to a comedic sense. But uh, yeah, so he pitched me this idea about... Um, making a movie about a, a you know a, like a DJ or a, you know living in like you know a, a trailer park that had a dream of becoming a famous club DJ moving to LA to break into the club scene and, and winding up to DJ bar mitzvahs and he goes and if you write it with me it'll be two brothers instead of just one main character um, so we toyed around with it and talked about it and uh, and then kind of push came to shove and he called me up and said all right, I'm I'm renting a hotel room for the weekend. I'm going to write the script. You know, you're are you in or are you out? And so I was in, and we ended up doing a short film based upon the original first draft of the first act, and you know, so on and so forth. It was years in the making, but that's how it all kind of transpired. And I would say that was like my film school was uh, that short film and that feature film project. Le learning as you go, the, the yeah, the right way of doing things for sure. <laughs> right into the fire. That's right. Well, I want to thank you again for taking a few minutes to, uh, to talk with us. I would very much like to maybe have a, a time later in the future where we can actually dig into some of the stories that I'm sure you have to have uh, and uh, maybe go again from there. Right on. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Okay, yes. Fresh. Bright. So, super nice guy. Has some great stories relating to his projects. I know I just felt him bleeding over. To, I, I so much had so many questions to ask. I mean, there there has to be at least two, three thousand stories just from American Pie on its own. But you know, he's had several fun projects he's been involved with, and he just seemed really awesome. Yeah, uh, some Rookie of the Year action. I definitely wanted to ask about that. Um, and then young Tony in um, Who's the Boss? <laughs> it's not like one episode. <laughs> Probably yes, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think when you look at his face, and then you look at rookie of the year, like oh my gosh, I can't. Why did I not remember that that was him? The funny thing is, I said the exact same thing to him before we recorded. It's like I I always loved you in American Pie. I don't see how I didn't make the connection that you were also in rookie of the year. How does that happen? How did I not know that? Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was very gracious and overlooked the fact that I am apparently uh, an imbecile. 
<laughs> Somebody that cannot tell shapes apart from one another or that they're the same shape. Yeah, that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah, no. So we're going to end this. Well, not end this, but we're going to go into the, the, the next to last little section here. I had a chance to speak with Jerry Milani, like I mentioned, who was kind of the guy behind the scenes that made sure everything went smoothly with uh, publicity for Wizard World and kind of had his hand in dealing with several of the celebrity uh, individuals that were present. And he gave a little bit of a historical take on how the convention was formed and what the convention stands for and, and a variety of different things. So let's take a listen to that. Thank you, Mr. Milani, for taking a couple moments to talk with me. Um, so what exactly would you describe your position with Wizard World? I handle all the public relations for Wizard World across the entirety of our series. So if it happens in any city, you have uh, some hand in it and, and makes things uh, go a little more smoothly from the, the people that you bring in? Yeah, my goal is to get as much attention, positive attention to our show, whether it's individual celebrities that are attending events or overall series PR just for branding of Wizard World. Okay, so Wizard World's been around for a little while. Uh, do you know much of the history of the convention? How did it kind of get started? Whose brainchild was it? The first Wizard World convention was the brainchild of Garib Seamus, who had owned Wizard Magazine back in the 90s. The first show was 1998. The old Chicago Comic Con was bought by the Wizard team and it became Wizard World Chicago. We've done that show consecutively for every year since 1998. We added the Philadelphia show in 2001. We've done that show consecutively every year. And then every year from there, we do between two and four shows. And then about six years ago, we expanded. And one of the cities we expanded to in 2015 was Cleveland, which is where we are now. We've done Cleveland five years in a row, and it, it couldn't be a bigger success than it is. So uh, you know, for, for those that are not completely familiar with uh, Wizard Magazine, uh, it was a magazine dedicated to uh, comic books in, in specific, uh, giving uh, reviews of certain titles and uh, you know contests for the people to send in, you know the interviews with things like that. So when they took over the, the the convention, did they try and keep it as a comic book feel, or has it been just kind of a, a progression where things have? by necessity shifted over the years. There's been an evolution certainly in the kinds of shows that the Comic-Cons, quote-unquote Comic-Cons are. Our show's not even a Comic-Con anymore. It's Wizard World Chicago, Wizard World Cleveland, and it's a pop culture celebration. So it's everything in the world of pop cultures. That includes comics. Everything is still there for the big comics fan, but we also have big celebration of movies and music and television and art and science fiction and there's cosplay, there's anime, there's video gaming, there's table games, there's entertainment, there's panels of all different types. There's really anything and everything in the world of pop culture. Whatever you celebrate, whatever you love about pop culture, we have that here, and there's going to be thousands of other fans who love the same things you love. Now, were you kind of a fan of this before you took this kind of a, a position, or is this something that you've kind of come to love as you've had the position? I think everybody's a pop culture fan in one sense or another. I'm more of a sports fan, so I may not rush out to see the newest comic book movie, but... I'm a connoisseur. I love old movies, and I love pop culture of lots of different kinds. Every The thing about Wizard World is it's not just for people who love sci-fi and comics. It is for them, but it's also for people whose first inclination wouldn't be to pick up a comic book or wouldn't be to go to that new superhero movie or watch a superhero show, but still lots here for anyone, whether they love that or not. There does seem to be quite... Um 
quite a variety that you may not expect from a convention. Uh, for for those that go to um, uh, gaming specific conventions, it's it's very specific. There's going to be gaming vendors. There's going to be events around gaming that are going to happen to it. Uh, for those that go to a lot of the more comic book specific uh, conventions, that's what you expect. You've got the vendors. You've got some artists. This seems to be kind of uh, a wide spectrum. So. What what is the what is the kind of the feel? I mean, it's a, it's a pop culture celebration. Sometimes when you're not in a specific n niche, how do you get that message to the right people so they can say, "Hey, there's something for everybody here." We think people come to our shows and end up leaving liking something that they didn't even know was going to be their favorite thing about the show. You might come to the show because you love Smallville, you want to meet Laura Vandervoort, you might want to meet Tom Welling, and on your way over to see them, you're going to see a superhero, Superman in costume, you're going to see someone in rep representing Smallville exactly, you're going to see an artist who's drawn a representation of it you've never seen before, you're going to run into all these things, and then you meet Tom Welling, and it caps off your day, you get a photo op with them. There's so much going on at our show that families can come and, and one family member might love Superman, another family member might love Batman, another family member might be into video gaming, and it's all here in one place. You walk in, and I mentioned that example because everything's in the room. Some conventions, if you love just anime and you want to go to an anime convention, it's terrific. We love when there's great shows like that in cities. We go to it shows that there's a vibrant community. We have a taste of that. The idea, though, is that you might wa wander over there on your way and go, what's that? And you've never been exposed to anime, and you go, what are all those people doing over there? Let me go see what that is. That's pretty cool. Let me talk to somebody. What we love about our shows is it lets people come together about things that they love and maybe explore some new things they never knew because they wouldn't be exposed to it by going to a, 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 con a convention that only focuses on something they already know they like. Do you find as an established convention that's been around for many, many years and that's been able to expand. I mean, I expect vendors are going to flock to a convention to have a chance to, to show people what they have to offer. Is, it, is there any areas that you sometimes feel that it's more difficult to get that little sector to be involved because they wouldn't normally think that this convention is what they should be in? Yeah, we talk to vendors all the time about this and sometimes it doesn't matter necessarily which guests are coming to our show. You're still going to get a cross-section of fans across all different fandoms. So someone will commit to our show, and then they'll find out that XYZ celebrities are coming. They might bring different items to, to reflect some of that. But in general, the pop culture fan has a, a broad uh, interest, and I think the vendors understand that. And they're not beholden just to one type of item. Now, if it's a vendor who specializes in anime, if we didn't have any anime, it wouldn't make sense for them to come. Maybe the anime convention makes more sense because they're going to have that kind of focused. But I think our vendors know that people come here with an open mind and there's an opportunity for exhibitors to show off different things than they, than they might or normally do at a show. Uh, same thing with our programming panels. We're going to try to offer a selection of programming that you know you might just sit in a panel and when it's over what's the next one coming in well that sounds kind of interesting comics and the whatever you know what I'll go for that let me hear what that's about and we're gonna we're, we're, we're growing the fan base for lots of different areas two more questions I have for you one is specifically you know talking about some of those panels and things that tends to be a big draw I mean when you, when you think of 
if you have somebody that's not familiar with the convention, the first thing you think of is Comic-Con because that's, that's the big one. That's what hits the news all the time. And the number of panels and things that they do are, are enormous, and they're always sold out, and there's never any room. Do you find, as a growing convention, that you have any difficulties sometimes that you get more of a response that you were expecting? It's like, well, we thought this, this 500-seat room was going to be perfect for this, and we're we're short how are we going to do this sometimes we never know an example was we in our portland show did a a a convention it was it was a recollection a group of the uh reunion of the uh buffy the vampire slayer group and we knew that individually they were popular we we didn't we knew that collectively they'd bring a lot of people we decided to put one panel all together let's do one panel with all 10 and it it gave us the opportunity to get everyone together for the that that group had not been together since the show ended that exact group of 10 had never been together uh and that became a viral hit and individually as they celebrities came back out to do autographs after that and photo ops we had we found out that some of the areas uh, allison hannigan's area wasn't big enough to accommodate the allison hannigan phenomenon that we we figured might happen because she doesn't come to a lot of shows. She'd never been to one of our shows before. We learn. We know better next time we have Allison Hannigan at the show <laughs> to get her a third booth instead of two. She needs three. Yeah. Uh, and that sometimes surprises us, and happily so. That's awesome. So the final question is kind of, um, you know, every, every company has their own mission statement that uh, they have this, this plan. What is kind of the mission statement of Wizard World, and how – Will that affect the company going forward? What is kind of the goal that Wizard World has? It's it's serve the fans. It's make it a great experience for number one the fans, number two the exhibitors, number three the celebrities who attend. And when you say the fans and the exhibitors, that's going to encompass our other guests. That's going to encompass anyone who we have either invited here or has come as a patron. That we want you to leave the show having had a great time, wishing there was another day, wanting to come another day. Can't wait for next year. Can't wait for our next show. Knowing that every experience, every day is different at Wizard World. Knowing that every experience at every show, there are elements of it that are the same, but every panel's different. It goes in a different direction. Even the Q&A with the Charmed crew is never the same Q&A from city to city. It's always different because the questions go in different directions and they tell interesting different stories that you frankly can't get that anywhere else. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Mr. Milani, for taking a few minutes to kind of give me a, a feel for what Wizard World really means, and I wish you more success in the future. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. So, as you could tell from that particular clip, it was much quieter where we recorded this particular uh, interview. He knew exactly where to go, and, uh, well, admittedly, not being a what you would consider a celebrity himself. He was not dedicated to a very specific area where he was going to have lines and lines of people waiting for autographs and memorabilia and, and uh, you know, little snap picks here and there. Yeah. A little more freedom. Absolutely. So hopefully you found these interviews as fascinating as I did. And I have a little bit more for the next installment of the Wizard World coverage that we have. The next installment will include uh, a little bit of an interview with uh, Lena Huffman, who is very well known among the geekly circles that I love for her work with Stargate Universe and Smallville and 
supernatural and just a, a variety of different things. And she's fantastic also. So we get a chance to talk to her. But on top of that, I was present for the Smallville panel that Ooh. included her as well as Michael Rosenbaum and uh, our friend. I'm going to call him our friend. He's my friend now. John Glover and mm-hmm. uh, Tom Welling and uh, uh, Vandervoort <laughs> about had a mental spasm. It's like I'm forgetting somebody. But it's it was actually pretty awesome. I had not been to a panel before. And it was great. Uh, I kind of thought that they would be a little boring, and man, I was wrong. I've seen paneling on a wall. That that may have been why I thought it was boring. Mm. It's completely different. So until next week, don't forget that we're out there looking for your commentary, looking for your reactions, looking for your address. No, maybe not the last one. Mm. Email email address. Maybe that's it. That'll work. Well, don't forget to visit us at www.everybodylovespudding.com where we have forums where you can leave comments and make suggestions and, you know, leave recipes for pudding, right? We're uh, Real Pudding Guys on Twitter. We're at Pudding Guys on Facebook. We have Instagram. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Pudding Guys. Pudding Guys and... We're in the process of getting our Twitch up and running, which is, unsurprisingly... Pudding Guys. <laughs> pudding Guys. <laughs> it's, it's weird how that works out. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are currently rocking a real strong viewership of zero viewers on our Twitch account, but hopefully that'll double, triple. To zero? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to basic math skills, hopefully you will in- help us increase this. Tell your friends... We really, really want to see what you think. But until next time.